Real horror stories are happening every day, even if we do not always hear about them. Murders, disappearances, devil worshipping and torture aren't made up by fiction writers. They are inspired by real events, some so horrific that they are difficult to comprehend. In this video, we'll be looking at a variety of real-life horror situations, from a vampire killer to an unnecessarily drawn-out death at the hands of medics. Mummies of Guananato. Between 1826 to 1837, a devastating cholera pandemic swept through many parts of the world, causing more deaths more quickly than any other epidemic disease in the 19th century. By around 1833, the outbreak had reached Guanajuato in Mexico. As the bodies mounted up, they were quickly buried to try and control the spread of disease, and sadly in some cases, it's thought that some were buried before they'd actually died. Some years later, in around 1865, the local government introduced a burial tax that forced families of the dead to pay a sum of money to keep their bodies buried. If they couldn't afford it, the corpse would be dug up. Inevitably, some families were unable to afford the tax, meaning their deceased loved ones were unceremoniously removed from their graves and moved to a storage facility. However, as cemetery workers began digging up the corpses, they were shocked to see the extent to which they had naturally mummified. With some of their faces frozen in what looked like screams of terror, Word got out about the horrific sight of the mummies, and soon people began paying workers at the cemetery a few pesos to have a sneak peek at the contorted remains. Eventually demand was so great that local authorities established a museum and started charging an admission to view the mummies and generate income for the town. For many years, visitors could get up close and personal with the twisted mummies as they were just propped up against the walls, secured with ropes and wires. And because some visitors started taking bits of the remains from macabre souvenirs, the local government was forced to display the mummies behind temperature-controlled glass. Today, the museum displayed 59 out of the 111 bodies that were removed from their graves. Amongst them is the oldest and first one to be dug up, Dr. Remigio Leroy, a French immigrant who had no family to pay the grave maintenance tax. His mummy is displayed still wearing the smart suit he was buried in. Also on display is what is claimed to be the smallest mummy in the world, a fetus taken from his mother who was pregnant when she died. But perhaps the most horrific exhibit is that of Ignacia Agula, a young girl who had a heart condition which caused her heart to slow to the point she appeared to be dead, and during her battle with cholera, her family and the doctor believed she was dead and hurriedly buried her. However, when she was dug up a few years later, it was evident that she wasn't dead when she was buried, and she was found turned in her coffin and appeared to have tried to eat her arm, possibly in a desperate bid to stay alive. The museum really is the stuff of nightmares. A lot of mummies are dressed in the clothes they were buried in, and some have photos of how they looked in life. But the overriding image is the contortion of fear on their faces, and the thought of what really goes on after we die and are buried in the ground. The museum has been the inspiration for a couple of books and films. The most well-known is Ray Bradbury's short story, The Next in Line, a bone-chilling tale about malevolent supernatural forces that Bradbury wrote after he visited the museum in 1947. The distorted mummies were also used in the eerie atmospheric opening sequence of the Nosferatu the Vampire, 
by German director Wilhelm Herzog. Hisashi Aoichi, the 83-day death. This next story is so horrific; it's hard to believe anyone could have allowed it to happen. The death of Hisashi Aoichi is considered to be one of the most horrendous in modern history. And his story exposes the lengths the Japanese medical experts were prepared to go in order to keep a man alive, as some sort of inhumane experiment. On September 30th, 1999, Hisashi Aoichi went to work as normal at the Tokaimura nuclear plant in Japan. Hisashi worked as a technician in a uranium processing plant operated by JCO, a subsidiary of Sumitomo Metal Mining Company. Hisashi and his two colleagues were asked to prepare a small batch of reactor fuel. It wasn't a process they were familiar with, as it was the first time in three years that JCO had requested this, meaning no proper qualifications or training requirements were in place. Furthermore, the technicians were under pressure to complete the task to meet shipping requirements. As a result, a catastrophic error was made. To purify the reactor fuel. Workers were supposed to use an automatic pump to mix up 2.4 kilograms of enriched uranium with nitric acid. Instead, they manually used a stainless steel bucket and mixed 16 kilograms of uranium by mistake. The incorrect measurement of high purity enriched uranium oxide mixed with nitric acid inadvertently triggered a self-sustaining nuclear fission chain reaction that released intense gamma and neutron radiation. The technicians first realized something was wrong when they saw a blue flash that triggered the gamma radiation alarms. Aoichi was the nearest to the precipitation tank, while his colleague was standing on a nearby platform, and the other colleague was sitting at a desk four meters away. Almost immediately after the leak, Aoichi and his colleague experienced pain, nausea, and breathing difficulties. And Aoichi, who had received the most significant radiation exposure, had problems with mobility and coherence. And eventually lost consciousness. A worker in the next building realized the severity of the incident and called for emergency medical assistance. And all three men were taken to hospital. The plant was evacuated, and the next morning, experts were able to end the nuclear chain reaction by draining water from the surrounding cooling jacket installed on the precipitation tank and adding a boric acid solution to the tank to reduce all contents to subcritical levels. However, Hisashi and his two colleagues were not so lucky. Aoichi had been exposed to 17 SV of radiation. His colleague Shinohara, 10 SV, and Yokoawa received 3 SV. To put this into perspective, the allowable dose for plant workers was 0.05. The worst affected was 35-year-old Aoichi, whose exposure to radiation was so extreme that most of his body had severe burns, and his internal organs were seriously damaged. In addition, his chromosomes were destroyed, and his white blood cell count plummeted to near zero, meaning he had no immune system. Aoichi was placed in a special radiation ward to limit the risk of infection. Over the course of the next few weeks, Aoichi was treated with various experimental drugs and procedures, including peripheral blood stem cell transplantation, repeated cultured skin grafts, and granulocyte colony stimulating factor. As well as being administered numerous painkillers and antibiotics, even though it was clear the damage Aoichi's body had sustained through radiation was untreatable. 
However, neither the transfusions or transplants could keep his bodily fluids from leaking out of his pores. During the first week of these pointless experiments, Auchi was conscious enough to tell the doctors that he couldn't take it anymore. He was not a guinea pig. Still, despite his pleas, they continued to treat him, and at the request of his family, doctors repeatedly revived him when his heart stopped. Auchi was being kept alive against his will when it was clear there was no hope of survival. Almost all of his body had been completely destroyed, and most of his skin was peeled off. After 83 agonizing days, Auchi died on December 21st, 1999, following an unrecoverable cardiac arrest. The agony Auchi must have been in does not bear thinking about, and to this day, Auchi holds the record for the most radiation experienced by a person who survived the initial dose, but at what cost? Keeping him alive when there was no hope of survival is one of the most significant examples of human torture in the 20th century. The ethical value of his prolonged treatment was questioned and received criticism. Now, we know there are photographs of Auchi suffering out there, but we are not sure of their authenticity, and some are too horrific to show, so we have chosen not to. As for the other two workers, while sadly despite a seven-month battle, during which Shinohara appeared to be recovering, he died on April 27, 2000, of multiple organ failure. He too had endured radical treatments and numerous successful skin grafts, as well as a transfusion from congealed umbilical cord blood, but was still unable to fight the radiation-induced infections and internal bleeding that eventually caused fatal lung and kidney failure. Their supervisor, Yokokawa, did manage to survive and was released after three months with minor radiation sickness, although he faced negligence charges in October 2000. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Phone Stalker Hal. It might seem trivial to be terrorized by a prank, but if you really think about it, to be constantly bombarded by an unknown stalker who must be watching your every move would be terrifying. In 2007, 16-year-old Courtney Kuykendall from Firecrest, Washington, started receiving random text messages from her friends, asking her why she had sent them text messages simply saying gay. At first, Courtney was slightly confused as she knew she hadn't sent any such messages and she brushed it off as a misunderstanding, or possibly a prank by her friends. However, things got a lot more sinister, and Courtney, as well as her friends, started receiving threatening text messages and phone calls from an unknown person who came up on their phones with no caller ID. The other families affected were the McKays and the Prices, all who knew each other and lived close by. They began to refer to the unknown caller as restricted, Restricted would regularly call and threaten to kill or rape them, kill members of their family, attack their schools, and even threaten to kill their pets. 
the messages and calls had gone way beyond a joke and started coming through around the clock on the family's landlines and mobile devices. Courtney, her family and her friends, who were all being targeted by these disturbing calls, tried to stop the harassment by switching phones, changing their numbers and turning their phones off and getting new accounts. However, nothing seemed to stop Restricted from getting through. By now, the police were involved and at one point in the presence of the police, all the family's phones turned on and called each other. Things started looking bad for Courtney after the police traced the threatening messages back to her phone which seemed to be able to send messages and make calls even when she had turned it off. Things got worse when the family returned home one day after a meeting with the police regarding the phone calls and they received a voicemail that consisted of a recording of an exact conversation they had had that day. By now, even Courtney's parents suspected she had something to do with the harassment, so they took her phone off of her, but that failed to stop the calls and messages. The families also realized that whoever the stalker was, they could not only hear everything that they said, but they also seemed to be able to see them, even when they were inside their homes, and even after the family got a new security system keypad for their home. Restricted called to tell the family that they knew their new passcode. One night, the family heard someone banging on the side of their house before running off into the night. At this point, even taping over their camera lenses and removing batteries from their devices, failed to stop the stalker. The ongoing harassment and lack of answers proved to be the stuff of nightmares. It was a crime in which the victims were continually terrorized by an unknown person that left police utterly baffled. The phone calls continued day and night for over four months. It was no longer just a sick inconvenience. It was causing uncontrollable fear and anxiety to all involved. At some point in the desperation, it's rumored that the FBI got involved, and that is when the harassment stopped. But if the case was ever officially solved, it was never publicly stated. It's worth remembering that the police had recordings of the stalker's voice, although it was heavily disguised. So who exactly was terrorizing the three families involved in this case? And why would someone go to such trouble, causing so much terror and anxiety? What could they gain from it? Could it have just been a clever hacker testing how robust a mobile phone was at the time, or some kind of spy test by the government? After all, the first iPhone launched in 2007, the same time all of this was happening. It's interesting that Courtney and her family did live near McCord Air Force Base, and her brother-in-law worked there. Although it's also worth pointing out, all three families involved have always denied any involvement in the stalking. Was the whole thing a sick hoax, or was there something more sinister going on? What's your thoughts? Teenage Vampire It's hard to believe that a child's ambition when they grow up is to be a vampire. After all, surely vampires aren't real, they're just creatures from folklore that like to feast on blood. Well, for Matthew Hardman, that is exactly what he wanted to be. And as he entered his teenage years, becoming a real-life vampire became a deadly obsession for him. Matthew lived in the sleepy village of Llanvaer-Pulgwynlith, on the island of Anglesey in North Wales, and outwardly he seemed just like a normal kid. He lost his father when he was young, although that did not appear to have affected him growing up, and he lived happily with his mother who was a nurse. At school, Matthew was diligent and well-behaved, despite being dyslexic and when he left school, he started college in Bangor, 
where he had plenty of friends and did normal teenage things like play video games, listen to music, and go out with his friends. But unbeknown to anyone, Matthew had developed a fixation on vampires, to the point where he became convinced that the creatures existed. His overriding thoughts were how do I become a vampire and how do I become immortal, and Matthew decided he needed to sacrifice another human to find out. The only person who had an inkling about this fixation was Matthew's teenage girlfriend, a German exchange student, although at the time she had no idea just how far he was prepared to take his obsession. She recalled how Matthew described the area they lived in as perfect stalking ground for vampires, because as he put it, the locals were so old that people wouldn't be suspicious if they died. He also tried to convince her that she was a vampire and begged her to bite him, sometimes shoving his neck into her mouth and screaming at her to sink her teeth into him. However, although she was alarmed by his vampire obsession and thought it had gone beyond a joke, she had no idea how seriously he took it. But Matthew was deadly serious about vampires being real, and he was determined to initiate himself into their secret community and put a plan in place to fulfill his bizarre notion. His target was 90-year-old Mabel Lichon, a widow who had lived a few doors from his home and who he knew as he used to be her paperboy. Matthew meticulously planned what he was going to do. On the evening of November 24, 2001, Matthew broke into Mabel's bungalow as she sat watching television in her living room. He crept up behind her and launched a sustained and brutal knife attack on the old lady, stabbing her 22 times. But killing her was just the first step in this ritual sacrifice. Once Mabel was dead, he proceeded to drain some of her blood into a saucepan from her kitchen. He drank some of the blood. He then crudely cut her heart out of her chest and placed it in a saucepan on a silver platter. Matthew then positioned two brass pokers at Mabel's feet in the shape of a crucifix and placed a candlestick on the floor close to her body. He balanced a red candle on the mantelpiece before leaving the house. The next morning, Mabel's horrified carer discovered the grotesque scene when she called round with Mabel's Sunday lunch. Shocked, police officers immediately launched a manhunt, and one police officer told journalists, the devil has been to Anglesey. Little did they know that the devil was the unassumingly local lad who lived down the road. Matthew Hardman was soon implicated by a wealth of evidence, including DNA he left at the scene, and Mabel's blood traces on the knife, which he kept in his bedroom. Matthew was sentenced to life in prison, and to date he is still incarcerated. The motive for the horrific crime was Matthew's irresistible attraction to the mythology of vampirism and the search for immortality. It just goes to prove you never know what's going on in someone's head. Matthew wasn't a local outcast, he wasn't known as a bad boy. He was just an outwardly normal kid who festers a grotesque obsession, which makes this case the stuff of nightmares. Sylvia Likens. The senseless murder of anyone is tragic enough, but when the murderer is someone close who is supposed to be a caregiver, it seems almost inconceivable, and the case of 16-year-old Sylvia Likens is so disturbing that decades later, the horror of what happened to her lingers on in Indianapolis. On October 26, 1965, Indianapolis police were called to 3850 East New York Street. There they found the body of 16-year-old Sylvia Likens. Immediately they could tell that her death was not the result of a single incident of murder. It was obvious that Sylvia had sustained prolonged torture and abuse. 
Sylvia Likens came from a poor family from southern Boone County, just northwest of Indianapolis. Her father, Lester, worked a range of different jobs to try and make a living, one of which was traveling with Carnival, selling food from a concession cart. And it was this work in the summer of 1965 that led Lester and his wife, Betty, to leave their children in the care of others until they returned. The couple had five children, but the eldest, Diana, was grown up and married. So it was the other four they needed to find homes for. It was decided their two sons, Danny and Benny, would live with their grandparents, and their two younger girls, Sylvia and Jenny, would stay with a friend of a friend, a woman called Gertrude Banasuski, who lived in a big house at the corner of East New York Street in Indianapolis. Gertrude was willing to look after the girls for a fee of $20 a week, and they moved in with Gertrude's seven children, whose age ranged from 17 to 18 months. The Lycans thought the company of other children would be perfect for their two daughters whilst they were away. Jenny was the shire of the two girls. She had suffered from childhood polio and walked with a limp. While in contrast, Sylvia was more confident and outgoing and went by the nickname Cookie. She always kept her mouth closed when she smiled because she had a missing front tooth. However, almost as soon as the girls moved in with Gertrude's, there was a clash between Sylvia and Gertrude's 17-year-old daughter, Paula. The pair just didn't get on. The clash caused friction in the house and a blame game started between the girls. This later escalated into something much more sinister just a week later when the $20 money order for looking after the girls did not arrive in the post as expected. Gertrude flew into a rage, blaming Jenny and Sylvia, and slapped both girls. And even though the money arrived the next day, the chain of abuse had been triggered. Gertrude was a frail woman, so to inflict maximum pain on the girls, she used two weapons, an ornamental paddle and a thick leather belt, and she would punish the girls for various menial offenses, such as exchanging soft drink bottles for change at a nearby grocery. On more than one occasion, she accused Sylvia of stealing and used matches to burn the girls' fingers. On occasions when she felt too weak to punish the girls, she enlisted the help of her daughter, Paula, who was only too happy to inflict pain on Sylvia, who she had grown to intensely dislike. But if that wasn't bad enough, Gertrude also invited the neighborhood children in to torture Sylvia in particular. As if it was a game, they would crowd into the house and practice their judo on her, often throwing her against a wall. Others would beat and kick her just for laughs, and some started stubbing out their cigarettes on her skin. Often, after being beaten or burned, Sylvia was forced into a scalding hot bath to cleanse her sins. When the traumatized girls started wetting the bed, Gertrude decided she was no longer fit to live with the rest of the children, and she was thrown into a cellar and was not permitted to leave the house. She was given just crackers to eat and was not allowed to use the bathroom. One day, Gertrude announced to her children that Sylvia was a prostitute, and she was so proud of it that she needed it etched onto her stomach. So she took a large needle and began to carve the words, I am a prostitute and proud of it, into Sylvia's stomach. Gertrude later asked one of the neighborhood boys, Richard Hobbs, to finish off the etching, and he obliged. After one particular beating, Gertrude realized she had gone too far and Sylvia was dying so she hatched a plan to blindfold her and dump her in nearby woods. With a note, she forced her to write, saying a gang of boys beat her up. But the plan backfired when Sylvia tried to escape, so Gertrude and one of her sons beat her again and threw her back in the basement. Not long after, the police were alerted, and when they arrived, Sylvia was dead. Her cause of death was determined to be brain swelling, internal hemorrhaging of the brain, and shock induced by extensive skin damage. 
Sylvia was also emaciated and suffering from malnutrition. Her body was covered in sores, burns and bruises, and the branding on her stomach was clearly visible. Gertrude was arrested, but tried to blame her own children for the abuse. But on May 19, 1966, a jury found her guilty of first-degree murder. Her daughter, Paula, was found guilty of second-degree murder. One of her sons, John, aged 13, and two 15-year-old neighborhood boys, that included Richard Hobbs, were convicted of manslaughter. Gertrude and Paula were sentenced to life terms, and the boys were sentenced to 2 to 21 years at the Indiana State Reformatory in Pendleton. All three of them were let out after less than three years. On appeal, Paula was released after two years, and Gertrude, who lost her appeal, was released on parole in 1985. She changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen and moved to Iowa, where she lived in obscurity until her death from lung cancer on June 16, 1990. So that's it for this video. Our heart truly goes out to all of those involved in these five stories. Thanks for watching, and as always, we'll see you in the next video.